This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity and all trailblazers and the breaking of all things normal. Aloha, y'all. Super exciting today. I think it's 316. Interesting. Although I don't think my next guest is much of a religious man. He is a flow state genius, Stephen Kotler. Maybe you've read some of his books, Abundance or Rise of Superman. Or the most recent one, The Art of Impossible, or Stealing Fire. And speaking of stealing fire, as you listen to this episode, you might hear me bring up some infotainment about tribe vitamins, which is a one-ingredient superfood that has infinite benefits. It's either bison liver or wild elk liver. The bison are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. I'm just going to read. Instead of, instead of me trying to tell you about it, let me read some of the recent testimonies on the website, tribevitamins.com. And right now we do have that seasonal batch of elk, wild elk liver, and I'm not sure how much longer it's going to last. As y'all may have known, we did run out of the bison heart looking to get that back. But this, is, uh, this business is built much more about community and sustainability and regeneration, regenerative agriculture than it is just strictly on scalability. So we intend on having bison liver all the way through, but we'll also be adding some seasonal, really small micro batches. But here are some of the, um, I'm just gonna browse through some of the testimonies here. From Luke W, very clear results. I've been taking supplements and been doing so for the last 15 years. Never been able to so clearly identify the results and benefits of one single one with such confidence like I can try vitamins. After two weeks, every day his joint pain in his knees has disappeared along with his dry and patchy red skin. He feels like he's glowing a bit more than normal, LOL. I like that use of breaking normal there. Seriously though, um, it's given him more clarity, energy throughout the day as well, and he's a believer and will be a repeat customer. Thank you, Luke. Let me read another one. This stuff right here, this person, Bailey, says she struggled with iron deficiency and low blood pressure for years, causing lightheadedness and sometimes even fainting. No supplement has done more to relieve this and restore my vitality than tribe vitamins. Wow, wow. And then she, she's got the gift of the C word, she says, and her body's been working hard to process that new information and felt extreme sinus headaches for weeks and extreme fatigue. And she thought she would just have to stick it out. And then she remembered these potent little capsules that were waiting at her bedside. And she says that they tried vitamins, woke me the heck up and gave me back my strength immediately. Words cannot express how grateful I am for Daniel Eisenman. Oh, thank you, Bailey. And his mission to make the sacred nutrients found in raw bison liver available to humans everywhere. Wow. Wow. All right, maybe I should do one more. Uh, let's do Chef Lance's. He says, and he's been on the podcast before, so check that one out. I think it's called like Bone Broth, Grateful Dead, and Jesus. <laughs> and for some reason, I'm on my Facebook Live right now, and the only thing that I'm getting is a notification that Nadim is watching. <laughs> it showed it like 12 times now. It just says Nadim is watching. Is that showing up different? On, and maybe that means I should be reading Nadim's episode. So I'll read, I mean, t testimony. I'll read Chef's and then Nadim's, and then we'll intro Steven to the show. Here we go. Chef says, new nails and feeling good. So far been remarkable. Nails have indicated mineral deficiency with white lines throughout for years. Then he noticed two weeks after consistently taking tri-vitamins, his nails are completely clear. He loves that nature's multivitamin is real bioavailable food. Wow. 
Wow. And he keeps going. He keeps going. And then finally, let's see if we can find the deems. And then I'll answer any questions here on the Facebook Live. And then we'll get to Stephen. Stephen is a genius and he communicates quickly. I trust you'll be able to pick up everything he was saying as quick as he was saying it. Um, oh, for some reason, it doesn't look like my the website shows all of the testimonies. It just shows like maybe the most 25 recent ones or something or 26 recent ones. So I don't see Nadim's. But I know it was a good one. I think he was talking about his hair and nails as well. And for me, my vision, and I'm talking like literal vision and metaphorical vision. So yeah, start your tribe vitamins, start microdosing today. You're just a click of a button away. And same thing, a click of a button away or leaving a review on this podcast, which is one of the best ways to get the, uh, to spread the message of breaking normal, you know, because it's about time. It's about time. And it's always the new normal, but we don't have to buy into some sort of propaganda that are putting profit before people. No, no, no. We don't have to do that. We can put people first, including you, by tuning into Breaking Normal and living your own Breaking Normal lifestyle. And I trust Stephen will inspire you to steal fire and rise up like Superman. And even some new books he told me about, especially one with the canine connection. We even talk about dog racism. So strap in. Here we go. Keep Breaking Normal, y'all. Thanks for everything. And I almost forgot to mention... Because Stephen is one of the greatest writers of all time, in my opinion, let me, and he has several books on Audible, what I'll do at the end of the podcast, I'll include a sneak peek to Breaking Normal on Audible in case this is the first time you've heard of this podcast. And if you haven't heard of the book, it's one of the productions I'm most proud of. And um, it was a long time in the making and it's still being refined. I might be having an afterward come out here soon. So um, enjoy the outro, which will be a teaser to the Breaking Normal book that you can find on Audible or Amazon right now alongside Stephen's books. All right. Enjoy, y'all. All right. One more question for y'all. Wow, this is funny. Um, if anyone looks up the Breaking Normal podcast on Spotify, can you find the Sot Song episode with Drew McManus, the lead singer of Sot Song? I think it was called Thrill of It All. Is it possible that Spotify is starting to censor podcast? Does anybody know? So I did want to get a confirmation while I have your ears and hearts and minds open and flexible. Let me know and uh, keep breaking normal. Enjoy this episode. How many times can I say that, Daniel? I love you too. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. Nice to see you, my friend. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? I am super well. Cool. Well, um, unless you have any questions, I'm down to just dive right in. Let's do it. Okay, y'all. I'm welcoming Stephen Kotler to the Breaking Normal podcast. It's a real honor. Um, firstly, I've read several of your books. I remember listening to Stealing Fire. And then I just recently listened to The Art of Impossible. And now I'm on the rise of Superman. So I don't think I did it. And I'm kind of doing it in a Breaking Normal order. You, you, are, you are not doing it in order, um, as far as I can tell. But I don't actually know if there is an order. But it, it's impressive. Well, I'm super thankful, super grateful that you have been uh, courageous and committed enough to publish such um, culture-shifting works that are, are really meaningful and affirming to me because I've been studying, in a way, what you have without maybe putting certain words to it for over a decade by hosting health retreats where the main, um, the main intention was to get these group of people into a state of heart sync. We would call it heart sync instead of group think. And uh, that was definitely activated by what I call a group flow state. So to be here with a uh, 
just a pioneering figure with uh, studying flow states and figuring them out and dissecting them so that the average, uh, the average Joe might be able to tap into it on a daily basis. It's, it's just a real honor and I'm excited for this conversation. So thanks for doing everything you're doing and thanks for being here. That is, uh, that was nice of you to say. I appreciate that. Well, what are you currently most excited about right now? I'm imagining uh, the book that just got released is one of the things. No, no. I mean, the book that just got released is, is, is great, but you have to, I, I'm, I've got another book coming out in November. I'm working on another book already. Uh, and I'm like four or five. Yeah. I, I'm that like that book was done a year ago and now I'm talking about it a lot. Um, I mean, what I'm excited about with this book, though, uh, I will say is, you know, on a certain level, um, the core material is what we've been, you know, using as the core of our trainings, at the Flow Research Collective. And we train a lot of people, um, but a thousand people a month on average. But that's nothing compared to the amount of people who are now reading the book and taking the ideas and taking them into the wild and banging on them and testing them. And sooner or later, you know, massive amounts of feedback are going to start coming back. That's super exciting for me, but that hasn't quite happened yet, but that's, that's going to come. And then, you know, then we get to really learn about this stuff. Well, I can, uh, I can relate to that in a lot of ways. I've recently launched a dietary supplement brand that's now available and people are now taking it for several months. And these testimonies from the long-term use of it are starting to pour in. It's basically just desiccated bison liver and capsules. And um, yeah, the data that's coming in is now my new project of like figuring out how to, what to do with this data, how to configure it so that the public knows what they could expect from microdosing on what I would say America's original multivitamin. And um, I'm, I'm kind of in that space as well. I see that you have a huge uh, stack of books behind you there. And we're talking about your books. Do you have any favorite books? What have been some of the most inspiring books of your life? So, uh, I, I always have the same answers to this question. Uh, it, and it depends what you're asking me, because if you're asking me what inspired me as a writer, as an artist, that's a whole separate set of books from what inspired me as a thinker. Um, and so I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff on the thinker side. Um, the book that really launched a lot of my career when I first started poking at people accomplishing so-called impossible feats, right? Stuff that had never been done before. And I was starting to do the research into the neurobiology of how are they doing this? Um, two things were going on. First of all, in the 1990s, when I was doing this, starting to do this work, that was a really cool era in neuroscience. This was the first time that neuroscience, we began to like with brain imaging technology sort of advancing, we started being able to link kind of mechanistic brain activity to actual behavior in the real world, to emotions, to things people were doing um, for the very first time. So if you're interested in how, to, how does the machine work, it was a really cool time because there was a lot to learn um, in that. And um, there was a book that came out right as I was doing all this work called Bone Games by a guy named Rob Schultes. The subtitle is Zen Shamanism, the Search for Transcendence in Extreme Sports. He fell off a mountain in Colorado. He was an extreme endurance runner and mountaineer, fell off a mountain, had a very profound flow state, near-death experience that changed his life. And he started looking at the intersection of um, so-called, he, he had spent a lot of time on Native American reservations, 
and he was really familiar with bone games, right? And, 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 and kind of like shamanic trips into to nature as rites of passage and um, that came with like these profound altered state experiences. And he, he was following these really weird esoteric traditions built around kind of physical activity and endurance sport and whatnot, and was writing about and saying, hey, maybe these things are flow states. And by the way, we're just starting to figure out a little bit of the neuroscience of flow. Here's what it is. And he didn't talk about flow. I didn't even have a name for what I was looking at at that point. It was the first time I'd ever heard the term flow. Um, his book came out in the 80s. And on top of that, um, he didn't try to explain it with psychology, which I wasn't particularly interested in at the time. He explained it with neuroscience, which was mechanism. That was like, okay, cool. I don't want the metaphor. I want the mechanism. I need to know how it works so I can believe it. And that's what I got out of that book. So Bone Games is always my first answer. There's a book called Song of the Dodo by David Quammen. I'm a, a lifelong uh, environmental activist and animal rights activist. My wife and I run an animal sanctuary. I've done a lot of this work. I've started companies in this area and whatnot. And uh, Bone Ga- uh, the Song of the Dodo is sort of the best overview of current environmental crises and biodiversity crises that I know of. Um, it really is about the work of the godfather of uh, conservation ecology, Michael Soule, which is a name that most people don't know. Um, yet he did his work in the 1960s, and almost everything we think about the environment and how to protect it came out of his head. Um, and that was my introduction to his ideas. David Quammen wrote this phenomenal book about it. And then there's a third book that I always list, which is um, The User Illusion, which is a book about consciousness and uh, the subconscious and essentially how big and powerful the subconscious and the adaptive unconscious is compared to consciousness. Um, the subtitle of the user illusion is cutting consciousness down to side. And so if, I, if we hire you at the Flow Research Collective, one of the things we make people do is read what we call the Humility Trilogy, which is David Eagleman's Incognito. There's a book called Strangers to Ourselves about like the power of unconscious biases. And then the user illusion is sort of the neuroscience of the same idea. And they're all books that basically say, look, we're habit machines. And if you really want to have any impact on your life, on your behavior, you have to come in at the level of ingrained habits and using flow to support those ingrained habits um, to really make effective change over time. And so these are sort of like three foundational books in that, that kind of that line of thinking. That was probably a much longer answer than you actually wanted, but uh, sorry. Oh, that was awesome. I'm like, I almost want to get it transcribed because I, I was like thinking about taking notes. I'm like, I'm just getting recorded because that, that was a lot of a good infotainment. Thank you. I mean, you did say a lot that could, well, let me just bring it back to the basics. Where are you currently? <laughs> I am uh, I'm on the Nevada side of South Lake Tahoe, essentially. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm high up in the mountains away from people. Okay. Okay, I'll tell you something. I remember going to Emerald Cove. Oh yeah, um, sure. And consuming some fun guy and getting That's in the water. That's probably a good place for it. Beautiful. I was just there. Well, I, the reason I bring this up and I was walking up the hill, I was in a profound flow state where I was like, I felt like I was beyond time, and I was seeing that little island where they have the tea house on top. Oh, yeah. And I felt like I was like, I felt like I was a Viking. Some, I was connected to some sort of Scandinavian Viking energy. Yeah, so this is this little... thing that happens to everybody else in the world besides me. Like I know I wrote Stealing Fire. I get that, right? I am, first of all, not a particular fan of psychedelics. 
Because I just like, I don't get it. I'm like, okay, I'm on drugs. Cool. Everybody else fucking talks to Norse gods. I'm just a guy on drugs. Like I'm a little hornier than usual and maybe a little dumber, but like everybody else goes out. They have every kind of cosmic mystical. Oh, I'm in flow. I've done more psychedelics than anybody could possibly imagine. I've never had those experiences. Yeah, I don't, it's cracks me up every time. People tell me their psychedelic stories all the time and it always involves Vikings or Norse gods. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I think you're all lying. Oh, that is hilarious. Yeah, I, I have a, I'm a pretty skeptical guy, but that day I was just so lit. I mean, I was so lit literally from getting in the cold water. I kept going into like the waterfalls falling off. And then oh, I, yeah. but it's something, it all, it all came together in what I think a lot of y'all's books are about. And I had that one yeah, of those moments I mean, there, there at Emerald Cove. Yeah, there's different, a little, there are differences between, um, kind of flow states and psychedelic states. We've done some really interesting uh, work. So with uh, some scientists in Robin Cart Harris's lab at Imperial College in London, where they do a lot of the brain imaging of psychedelics, the original, what does your brain do on MDMA? What does it do on LSD? What does it do on psilocybin and DMT? They did all that work there. And we did some comparisons between what happens in the, you know, in the brain during flow versus psychedelics and really kind of looked at things, not in terms of, uh, in terms of efficacy, like where are psychedelics really good and useful and where is flow better, you know, that sort of stuff. The comparisons were interesting. Um, I still don't find psychedelics particularly useful in a real world sense. I've never had an insight on psychedelics that has actually changed the way I live my life, whereas almost every insight I have in flow has a real world impact. But that, I think, is particular to me and not particular to most people. Okay. Okay. That, yeah, that's fascinating to find out that I, I would especially just uh, assume that you and some fun guy outdoors would have had some profound experiences. Everybody, that, everybody I mean, I, look, it's not for lack of trying. I, so the, the other thing you also have to understand is that in general, there's, I, so there's something genetically, there's a genetic coding in my family. This is kind of a, in psychedelic terms, there's like something called a hard head. And it's defined as somebody who has to take enormous quantities of psychedelics to have any kind of experience. That's what I am. But it's actually like when I go have surgery or when my mom goes to have surgery, we have to tell the doctors that morphine isn't going to work on us. And like, we're going to come out of surgery screaming. So it's kind of almost any substance like that. I joked that I used to do when I was very, very poor and coming up as a, as, as a writer early on, before I even went to grad school, I was living in San Francisco and I was doing a tremendous amount of acid because it was dirt cheap and it was like 12 hours of entertainment. But everybody else would do like drugs and have drug experiences. I would do acid and it would help me focus and I would read Vatican history and take notes that ended up in my first novel. Like I swear to God, like acid was how, it was like a study tool for me. <laughs> I know everybody goes out and uses psychedelics to have mystical experiences. It was a study tool for me that helped me do the research for my first book. I know that just sounds totally counterintuitive, but I also think it's one of the reasons, like I've, it's helped me as a flow researcher um, because getting into any kind of altered state is very difficult. So I have like, it's a high barrier to entry for me. And thus, you know, if I'm trying to even use my own experience to, to steer from, which I don't do very often, but if I am, I've got a high threshold. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's a, all right. I'm also seeing that surfing picture behind you and it's reminding me of probably one of the favorite parts of the art of impossible about surfing away limes. 
And I was thinking about that because that's one place that psychedelics and uh, flow state have not mixed for me. Because once I remember going to one of my favorite surf spots in San Diego that I always go to, and I would smoke some cannabis and then went out there. And I was like, this is so dangerous. I can't believe I have been doing this. <laughs> yeah, I just had a paddle. Yeah, I just had a paddle in. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't uh, believe yeah, it. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I understand that with surfing and marijuana because a lot of people use surfing and marijuana. And I'm cannabis and skiing mix really well for me. But surfing, it like never. And then one day I was in Costa Rica. It was a big day. And I was freaking out on the beach. And I was the, the local guy I was with knew I was freaking out. He was like, here, smoke some of this and follow me and do exactly what I do and go exactly where I go and you'll be fine. And I did. And it was like, he, first of all, he paddled out, like he managed to paddle through like these massive swells without like even getting his hair wet. Like there was some kind of crazy invisible channel that we could get out in. And so I followed him out there. I was like, whoa, this is safer. And it was the only time I've ever had a good time surfing stone because every other time I have your experience where I'm like, oh shit, this is so dangerous. Those waves are so big. I'm going to drown. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Where in Costa Rica was that, by the way? I uh, can't, maybe Nassar. I don't Nassar, actually remember yeah. where, where, where I was on that trip. Costa Rica, I've been there almost 15 to 20 times and surfing in Costa Rica is so pleasant such a great country for surfing but tell me about this uh if you don't mind sharing a little bit um without giving too much away for someone that hasn't listened to the book because i've had a lot of guests and i have a lot of friends that have struggled with lyme's disease actually one of the recent guests trevor hall that was one of the topics we talked about and i'm it seems like it's kind of a confusing conversation so mike i got lyme obviously i was 30 years old i had it's, it's useful to put this whole thing in context. We're supposed to be talking about the book, The Art of Impossible. So let me put that in a little bit in context and then lead into the surfing story. And then, you know, we can go from there. In my 20s, I became a journalist. And as I said earlier, my core interest was those moments in time when impossible became possible. And I was originally drawn to this question in action sports, the 90s in action sports, as you probably know, it's the great era of impossible or more so-called impossible feats were done than ever before in history. And it would be level of uh, progression was unlike anything anybody's ever seen in sport. Um, and it was surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboard. It was everywhere, right? It was ubiquitous. And that alone, you know, it was a puzzle. It was a giant. I mean, for, especially for the, like, the journalists who were involved in covering the sport, we'd see things that looked like magic and we'd have conversations like, well, this is it. This has got to be the ceiling. There's no way. It's so crazy. It'll never go up. And it kept going up, kept going up. And what was really fascinating about it, and then I'll get to the Lyme stuff in a second, was that most of the athletes I was spending my time with were not like, they had horrific childhoods. They came from broken homes. They had very little money. They had almost no education. There was a lot of risk taking. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol. This is not a group of people who are going to reinvent the possibility space for the species, but that's exactly what was happening, right? These people should have been dead or in jail because that's what happens when you get those things in a community. And instead, what you got was the reinvention of the possibility space for the species. And I was trying to solve that question. What the hell is going on? And I was also I'd broken a lot of bones trying to chase professional athletes around mountains. And I had sort of like wanted to taper off a little bit on that. Like, um, and I started taking this question, what does it take to do the impossible into other places, into technology? 
the 90s where all these sci-fi ideas were becoming sci-fi technology. So I, that was my beat for Wired and the New York Times and a bunch of these science publications. I would, anytime a sci-fi idea became a science fiction technology, I was in the room when the thing got turned on or tried to be. And I was asking the same questions. What's going on? And there was no clear, coherent answer yet. Um, there, was some, there were some patterns that were showing up that all seemed to involve altered states of consciousness you know, that we'll later talk about as flow, but these patterns have just started to emerge. And I got Lyme disease. In the middle of all this, I got Lyme disease and spent three years in bed. And you know, Lyme's sort of like the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. I was destroyed. Um, I couldn't walk across a room. I couldn't think, I couldn't write, I couldn't work. And I was really sick. And then after about three years, my stomach lining started bleeding out in reaction to the meds. So the doctors pulled me off meds and nobody knew if I was ever going to get any better. And I was functional about 10% of the time. And I was like, holy crap, I'm just going to be a burden to my like friends and my family. For the rest, of I can't work. I can't focus. You know, I'm not like, yeah, I've got the emotional intelligence of a two-year-old. I'm hallucinating, right? I've got no short-term memory or long-term memory. I mean, it was, I was a mess and I was physically disabled. And I was going to end my life and in the uh, really serious, like, like matter of weeks kind of end, I was going to end my life. And um, a friend of mine showed up at my door and demanded that we go surfing. And I was laughing and I was like, I, I can't walk from the couch to the kitchen. And you want me to go like, you're out of your mind. And she wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave. And, wouldn't, and after hours of it, I was just like, you know what? Fuck, let's go surfing your dad. I mean, like, what is the worst thing that could happen? Right. So um, they literally, her and my neighbor, like load, carried me to the car. They loaded, they carried me out to the beach when we got out to the beach, out to the, like, they had to take me under their arms to walk me out to the ocean. They gave me a board the size of a Cadillac. It was like, we went to Sunset Beach in LA, which, you know, as you know, is the wimpiest beginner wave in the entire world. And it was like June. So the tide's out. The, it's warm. It's maybe two foot day, maybe. And there's no one out. And I wade out to the lineup and I sit down and um, 30 seconds later, a wave came. And I didn't surf in years at that point, probably five years, but I don't know what happened. Like muscle memory took over and I spun my board and I paddled twice and I popped my feet. And that was probably all the energy I had for the entire week. You know what I mean? Like I used all of it just to get into that wave and I popped up into a dimension that I didn't even know existed. Like I popped my feet and I felt like I floated straight out of my body. I could see out of the back of my head. The pain was gone. My head was clear. I could surf. I felt great. I felt alive. It felt amazing. It felt so good. I caught four more waves that day. And by like the sixth wave, I was done. I was cooked. And they brought me home and they put me into bed and uh, couldn't move for like two weeks. And on the 15th day, which was the day I could actually walk again, I caught a ride with my neighbor and I went back to the beach and I did again. Again, I had this crazy altered state experience, didn't know what it was. Um, and it was really powerful. It was really fun. I went back and did it again. And over the course of about six to eight months, when the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing, I went and having these crazy altered state experiences, I went from about 10% functional to about 80% functional. Now, a couple things to know. One, I'm a science guy right? I'm a rational materialist. I was interested in neuroscience and biology and um, surfing is not a known cure for chronic autoimmune conditions. So what the hell is going on was my first question. Second of all, 
as you could probably tell, I'm not a particularly spiritual person. I'm a rational materialist. I don't have mystical experiences, and I certainly don't have them in the waves. And Lyme is only fatal if it gets in your brain. And I was absolutely certain the reason I was having these mystical experiences out in the waves were because even though I was feeling better, the disease had gotten into my brain and it was killing me. And so I lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell just happened to me. Like, what is going on? And I very quickly figured out, A, hey, these states of consciousness, these are flow states. They have a name. The same thing that I was hearing about in action sports a little bit, this, that's what these are called. And a guy named Herb Benson, who was at Harvard, who's a cardiologist, had just mapped the neurobiology of the flow cycle. Flow is not a binary. It's not like a light switch. You're either in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four-stage process with huge changes of neurobiology and physiology throughout the whole process. And he had mapped it. And he noticed a couple of things. One of the things he noticed is that as you transition into flow, there's a global release of nitric oxide in the body. It's a gaseous signaling molecule. You usually, like if you're working out and like 20 minutes in, suddenly it gets quiet upstairs and your lungs open up a little bit, right? And you have a little pain relief, that's nitric oxide. It's flushing stress hormones out of your system. That's what's going on at that moment in time. And it's all replacing them in terms of flow with positive, feel-good, performance-enhancing neurochemicals. Two things are really key here. Autoimmune conditions, whatever else you want to say about them, are a nervous system gone haywire. And the biggest problem is we're homeostatic organisms. And once your nervous system bounces all over the place for a while, it doesn't know where normal is anymore. It can't find normal. And so by resetting the nervous system, it can actually find normal again, and you can start to heal. And even better, all the neurochemicals that show up and flow after that happens are big immune boosters. And Herb Benson has gone so far in his book, The Breakout Principle, to say, hey, this may be the process underneath all so-called cases of spontaneous healing, this mechanism. I think that's probably overstating it because basically because I don't like it makes sense to me and with autoimmune conditions because you've got a nervous system that's gone haywire. It doesn't make sense to me with something like cancer, but what do I know? Right. Um, this is, that's out way outside my field. I don't, I don't, I don't work here, but like that was his comment. That was definitely my experience. And what I quickly figured out is that, Hey, wait a minute, the same state of consciousness that helped me go zero super subpar back to normal, right. To zero was helping these action adventure sport athletes or these inventors or these entrepreneurs or everybody else I was studying go from zero up to Superman or Superwoman. And that was sort of like my introduction to flow and the neurobiology of flow. And, you know, I, I really haven't stopped studying that since then. Um, the only thing that's different is first I wrote magazine articles about it and columns, and then I wrote books about it. And then when that wasn't enough, I started the Flow Research Collective. And now I run a team of giant, a giant team of neuroscientists and psychologists, and we study this stuff. But it really hasn't changed. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a super amazing story. And that was one of the things that we did at our retreats. We would make sure people got in the water. Um, that was a big part of it. Maybe because the water was really cold and fresh or maybe because just being in the ocean sometimes. And that, I've heard a, a term called like an epigenetic spark from a previous uh, podcast guest, Dr. K. And it sounds almost as what you're alluding to from my perspective, like this, a spark that can happen. And I do think surfing in the ocean in a flow state I'm happy to use the term spark. I epigenetic is a term that I 
would be very cautious around until I knew exactly what you're talking about. And I like, I, you know, is flow and epigenetic spark is so beyond anything we know or can answer, but is it absolutely like the, the seed of, you know, passion for sure. Absolutely. That we can say like scientifically for certain. Well, speaking of surfing and one of the ways that I think that I've gotten the most coherent with my nervous system, like feeling I can, if I notice my, I'm more aware and know how to handle it and be in harmony with it is, uh, was catalyzed probably with Laird Hamilton and Gabby and, uh, Darren Oline there in Malibu at one of their XPT life experiences where we went through variety of breath work, um, hot, cold contrast, uh, even did some stand up paddle boarding out there in the ocean, played volleyball, the whole thing. It was a, pure like what's more pure than play that's a question that i've always been led to it's kind of a leading question in my life uh what's more pure than play and having a three and a half year old daughter it continues to be uh but one of the things that we did there was we got into some breath work and it's very much wim hof style and i've kind of adapted all these different breathing techniques from a variety of people that are out there and i do that every morning i do a I, I've, if I don't do the breath work, I feel like my nervous system is not as in harmony. And I'm kind of wondering, do you have a daily dosage or a daily ritual that, so your nervous system so, is correct? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in the art and pause, while I talk about a little bit about what I call the positive psychology basics, right? Positive psychology has been the past 30 years sort of figuring out what do you just need to even get in the peak performance game? Like what just like what gets you into the game? And this is um, this has been an ongoing question. Like go back to like Nietzsche and Freud and like peak performance. Um, and after about 30 years of looking at this question, positive psychology has come up with a six pretty solid answers. Three are on the physical side. Hey, these, this is what you need for the physical energy to perform at your best. Three are on the mental side. Here's how you tune up the mental landscape to perform at your best. Here's how I think of it. On the physical side, nothing surprising here. You need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. You need hydration and nutrition, and you need social support, right? And people often don't think about social support. They think it's important for psychological health. They don't realize that if you don't have robust social support networks and you're not maintaining those connections, you pay a physical energy penalty for it. Um, you pay a cognitive load penalty, but you also pay a physical energy. So it's, I lump it on the physical side of the equation. On the mental side, anxiety, norepinephrine, blocks peak performance, as you just eloquently pointed out. What psychology says is, hey, if you want to tune up your nervous system, you have three options. A daily gratitude practice, a daily mindfulness practice, breathwork practice, or regular exercise. And we actually can take it farther than that. It's a five-minute gratitude practice, right? Standard positive psychology gratitude practice. 11 minutes a day of breathwork is enough. Um, after if you're consistent with it for even a, a couple of weeks, it will you'll get heightened emotional regulation and right and you'll calm down. But just stress management, right? And exercise. You want to exercise when till you get nitric oxide till it gets quiet upstairs and the stress hormones are flushed out of your system. Usually for most people, depending on your fitness level and how hard you're going, 20 to 40 minutes. So what I tell people is, under normal conditions, if you're just living your life. Do one of those a day every day. If you're stressed out, if COVID is happening, whatever, do two a day. 
if you're really, if COVID is happening and you're fighting with your boyfriend, girlfriend, sister, brother, mother, whatever, do three a day, right? Like that's how I think about it. And, um, you know, on the flip side with the, the physical stuff, the physical energy with social support, uh, hydration, nutrition, and, uh, seven, eight hours of sleep. I always tell people under normal conditions, you can usually screw one of those up a day. You can't do it like three, four days in a row, right? But like if you screw up sleep, but you've got good social support and good hydration, nutrition, you're probably going to be able to muster up the energy to perform at your best that day, right? You couldn't go do it. Don't do it a bunch of days in a row, but you can still think about the calculation that way. Different people are different on that stuff, but that's how I think about these sort of like questions like what's the basics to get you sort of into the peak performance game. Well, that, um, that research is extremely affirming to exactly what I've found. And um, that's awesome. What about your writing? How do you, I mean? how do you create your writings, your books, your articles? Do you, like for instance, the way I have a book called Breaking Normal, and that was mostly, I had to speak it into an audio recorder and then work with the writer to translate that into a book. That's how it we're not a writer. For, yeah. I'm a writer. Like, okay. Yes, tell I, me, like, tell I, me, how do you do, how do you do what you so, do? For, well, what I could tell you is if you go to my website, stephencollar.com and you look under trainings, you'll see a class called flow for writers, which is literally everything I, I I've learned. Um, I spent uh, like 10 years trying to think about all the tips, tricks and like everything that I, that I do. So the whole answer is there. I'm happy to answer a very specific question, but you have to understand that I have been writing since I was five years old. It was, I wrote a poem when I was five. I've been wanting to be a writer since I was probably a teenager. And I've been writing every day for hours and hours and hours for sure. Since I was 15. Every and, day for hours and hours and hours yeah, since you're I, yeah, 15, every yeah, day. I, the, there are very, very, very few days. So uh, like even, you know, I ski quite a bit. I live in Tahoe. I, like I will get up uh, at 3.30 in the morning so I can write from 3.30 till 8 and then go to ski. Yeah. Like I, like I, you, I've watched the sunrise every day since I was 30. I'm 53. I've seen the sunrise every day since I was 30, pretty much because I'm writing. I, Do you I, have any rituals like, of looking into the sun, any sun gazing stuff uh, since you're there I, every day? So what I know, uh, though, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we know that when you look at a wide horizon and stimulate peripheral vision, it activates parasympathetic, it calms you down, right? It activates parasympathetic response and it allows the dorsal ACC, the part of your brain that finds connections between ideas, it allows it to find farther flung connections. So it stimulates creativity. So I do, I mean, let's not make this fancy. Every day I get up and instead of going into my bathroom to take a piss, I walk outside, I take a piss, I watch the sunrise, I get a little bit expansive and then I walk back inside. So I do do that, but like I'm taking a piss. We can't, let's not fetishize this too much, right? Like, yes, I've seen this on Rise every day for 32 years, but like, here's the truth. What, what about naked sun exposure? Is that part of a protocol for you? No. No? No. I think, uh, no. Though I, my, so I do have an active recovery protocol. I, th I think, you know, active recovery is a big part of peak performance um, as well, which involves, you know, saunas or Epsom salt baths or restorative yoga. And, you know, 
Um, I, when I when I'm in when it's ski season, I'll do you know one to two 20 minute yoga sessions a day and make sure I'm either in an Epsom salt bath or a long infrared sauna. Um, those are naked. Is my point? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I always think of like yoga, if it was nice and sunny, especially restorative yoga, getting that sun and all those parts I, where the sun doesn't usually shine would be that, I, yeah, that I don't ideal think, I don't protocol. Think I'm outside, you know, I live <laughs> in the mountains. I hike my dogs to the mountains every day. I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm outside 250 days a year, pretty much one way or another doing something. <laughs> Tell me about your dogs. I think I saw a white furry creature somewhere behind us at one point you did you, that was kiko um uh my wife and i have done uh we do hospice care and special needs care we operate a sanctuary um so uh we uh a lot of uh, a lot of our work uh now is around placing hospice care dogs so people will be dying and they're they'll still have dogs and we'll find new homes for those dogs um we do that work we've also spent a long time uh most of the we we don't do this work anymore for a while for 15 years, we were, 14 years, we were in uh, a very rural and poor part of Chimayo, New Mexico, um, second poorest county in America, highest instance of animal cruelty. So we were working on the front lines for a lot of years. Um, so uh, we have the, uh, the kind of the remnants of, the, of, of that pack. But uh, a lot of the work we've done is around developing a, a healing protocol, a longevity protocol. We're pretty good at taking a dog with late stage cancer or heart disease. You know, if you've got like two, you know, three legs, one eye, late stage cancer and heart disease, you're our guy. Oh, and, and serious abuse and trauma. Like that's what we work with. And um, we'll get, dogs will come to us from the vet and the dog, that'll be like this, don't get attached. This dog is going to be gone within a, a month or two and they'll live for five years with us. And within wow. like two months, they'll be hiking five miles a day through the back country with us. Like we, we've got a very successful, flow is part of our healing protocol. We put the dogs get into flow. It's common in most mammals, and you can put dogs in the flow. I did a lot of work. If you read my book, A Small Furry Prayer, which is about the relationship between humans and animals. Um, no, I don't even know about that book. Is that on Audible? Yeah, I think it's on Audible. I think all my stuff's all on right. Audible at this point. No, and my first out. novel is on Audible, but I mean, I don't know. There's, <laughs> There's a lot of books. Um, Wait a minute. Tell me the title again. The Small Furry Prayer. And tell me about that. What, what, what exactly? It's a, book about, so it's a book about the work my wife and I have done in, 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 animal, in animal work. It's a, and, and sort of the work, the, it's about human-animal relationship. And it has a lot, there's a lot of flow in there as well. A lot of the evolution of flow. Where did flow come from? Um, there's early things. So this is a complicated, this is, we're going to get, side, if, I, if I go here, it's going to take 10 minutes and we're going to do a weird history of evolutionary history of flow thing in the middle of your, the podcast. If you want know, me to answer this question, I'm just, I'm well, let me see how I can tie it to what my, my current situation is. I have a pit bull um, that I believe is the best animal I've ever been in flow with <laughs> continuously. I mean, like amazingly, amazingly in depth of like the depth of her eyes, like everyone kind of gets struck like what in the who. Like almost intimidated by just her presence. And um, she just had puppies. And it was a crazy situation. Um, they, her uterus is out now. So it was a one litter quitter. But these puppies are really special. So there's six of them in Georgia. And um, I am in that situation. I, and I am totally in love with my dog. And uh, two dogs. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at. And I, and I, I have studied. I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by the, 
mass confusion around um, banning breeds of dogs. It's, it almost rings like dog racism well, to me. Well, first of all, I mean, like... <laughs> and so however you want to cut tie flow state, and I, I am particularly interested in pit bulls and... Uh, I love... We have, we have a pit. Uh, we have, we, we have a, a, a Bella. She's a pit healer mix. Um, she saved my life once when I was mountain climbing with her. Um, literally saved my life. Like I was, I literally like I was wedged into a rock wall, like on either side. I was, we, we got really lost and had to, had to do a chimney climb with no ropes, no protection to get out of it. And I was two halfway up it and my foot started to slip. And I like, she was like somewhere off in the periphery and saw what was happening and bounded over and grabbed my pant leg and caught my foot and held me on the wall until I could get a new hold. Yeah, that's in Small Furry Prayer. That's How old there. was she when she did that? Did she was know? like three years old when she did that. That's gracious. She was, that's gracious. that was an interesting thing. That was sort of the, like, I sort of had a feeling, because she sort of risked her life to do it. We, oh. she was a, she was a heavy rescue. Like when we rescued her, um, we knew we could get stuck with her for life. People are scared of pit bulls and she was a black dog. And people are also scared of black dogs. And a black pit bull has almost no chance of living. Like it's like a death sentence in the shelter system. Wow. 99.99. That's amazing. I think that would be like the dream. I would I almost no, I mean, it, it, But there by the way, um, racism extends to dogs a lot. People don't like black dogs. Black people as a general don't like black dogs. Let, let, white dogs are fetishized in a lot of those communities. It's really bizarre. And you can't even say this stuff out loud. The fact that I just said this out loud, people are going to hate me for what I just said out loud, but it's odd, but it's a known thing among rescuers that black dogs are the absolute, it's, it's a death sentence for a dog. And this dog was very, very seriously abused. I remember when we got her home within like a week, she had bit, she bit my wife's finger to the bone. Um, and, uh, was it a pit? So this, this is, did it, did the pit bull like hold, like it held onto her hand? No, no. It, I mean, no. she was an abused dog. So yeah. abused dogs get snappy. I mean, like, but you, you get bit when you do this work. Like, of course, she, like, that's just part of it. We weren't even like, you weren't even mad. She was just a hard case. Hmm. Well, I'm amazed that you do this work on top of everything else you do. I, and I am very fascinated having the pit bull and I traveled all around the world and it, I'm kind of infuriated that like, I can't even bring my dog into New Zealand because they have a pit bull yeah, ban. And my dog, and it, yeah, my dog and trains aggressive dogs. My dog is like, it is no, the dream. I mean, no, they're, pit bulls are amazing dogs. They're amazing, amazing, amazing dogs. I love them. Um, they're really sweet. And it, it, it's funny also because um, they're not a breed that scares me at all. At all. Um, I don't find them skittish. I find them very predictable. Like you can tell when a pit bull is aggressive and you can tell when he's not. And there are other breeds that are a lot more skittish, um, have run, have run hotter with more norepinephrine. Pit bulls are really stable as a general rule um, and really sweet and smart. Yeah, and the thing where you said that dog would have died for you uh, also seems like that type of loyalty. My dog seems like, oh, there is nothing that would, yeah, she would do she, anything for I, me. Th th you would all, you, sometimes with rescue animals, sometimes they don't know they've been rescued. Like they, they know something better has happened and you're involved, but they don't get 
the situation, but other animals, you're very, it seems very clear that they understand sort of what has happened and, you know, that they were in a cage and with other animals that were, who were dying in those cages and now they're not. And, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Bella was that kind of dog, the pit bull we had. And so I always get the feeling when she saved my life, she was saying, thank you. I could be wrong. Well, that's amazing to hear. Um, um, I, we, I have to say about 10 more minutes. That works for you. Whatever you need. I'm just here <laughs> answering questions. Admiring well, you your buffalo for, painting. Oh, thank you. I didn't make that painting. The um, guy, one of my friend's dads did. He's an amazing person. And it just is so on brand with my current project. So I love it. Um, do you have any questions for me? No. Nope. Um, I will. That's not true. I probably, I have lots of questions for you, but I would need <laughs> more information um, before I had questions for you. I'm sure I do, but not right off the top of my head. And do you want to make sure that we include anything that we have not said? Um, we should talk. A I mean, it'd be useful if we told people what the actual book is about. Other please. than that, other, yeah, other, than tell, that, tell me. other than that, um, pardon me? Yeah, yeah. I would love to hear that from you. I listened to it, Art of Impossible, on, on Audible and go download it now. I, the way I listen to audiobooks, I usually... Uh, I like to take a hike with them or get a massage while listening to them or do something where it almost feels like the message is not only going into my mind, but somehow like becoming a part of my being. And uh, that's one of the reasons I love uh, audiobooks and uh, The Art of Impossible is awesome. So I would love to hear for someone, what is it about or why, why would yeah. they download? We got the yeah, author right yeah, here, baby. Yeah. What has happened over the past 10 to 15 years in the field of, of peak performance is Flow, first of all, what we learned 20, 30 years ago is flow is the secret to peak performance, right? It's literally defined as an optimal state of consciousness when we feel our best and we perform our best and massively amplifies pretty much the full suite of cognitive peak performance skills, motivation, grit, learning, creativity, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, perspective taking, et cetera. It's a huge boost. Some of the times you see amplification 500% above baseline. This has been sort of known for a while, what hasn't been known, what is new, is that, wait a minute, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. So if you're interested in peak performance, first of all, you're hardwired for it because flow is universal. Anybody can get into it. And second of all, um, there's a toolkit, right? We know flow states have triggers. But what we've also learned is, turns out flows necessary for peak performance, it's not the full picture. There's also a set of motivation skills you'll need, a set of learning skills you'll need, and a set of creativity skills you need. And the way I like to explain that to people, kind of why that's, why these things, first of all, that's the, that's the full suite of peak performance tools available to us. What I mean by that is peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against, against us. And the biology, while vast, is a limited set of skills. There's a bunch of motivation skills that sort of get you into the game. There's a bunch of learning skills that allow you to continue to play. There's creativity skills that help you steer, right? Especially if you're going after hard challenges and semi-impossible goals, right? You need creativity to steer. And then there's flow skills that allow you to turbo boost the results sort of beyond all reasonable expectations. That's what the book is about. But what's really new and what I think is cool is over the past five or six years, what science has, has taught us is, hey, wait a minute. These skills evolved a long time ago in a, kind, in a certain order, in a certain sequence, in a certain way. And if you can bring them online, 
sort of in this order, in this sequence. If you can use your biology and use the system the way it's been designed to be used, you go farther, faster with a lot less fuss. So the moral of the story is, you know, what 30 years of studying pre-performance has taught me is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. And what we now have is an actual blueprint. Here's how the biology of peak performance works. And because it's our biology, it works for everybody, right? So it works at scale. So that's what I think the art of impossible is. It's the first kind of, I think, neuroscience-based peak performance primer. It's a blueprint that I think anybody can apply to significantly level up their game. And it's, in a sense, the same blueprint we use to, you know, at the Flow Research Collective to, you know, train about a thousand people a month. Farther, faster, with less fuss? With far with, less fuss. With far with farther, less fuss. I think is what I said. I, I think <laughs> I hit the total alliteration four times. Um, I apologize. Do you play chess? A little bit. A little bit. Um, I think uh, it's a good game. I think writing's a better game. I think neurobiology may be a better game than writing. Skiing may be a better game than neurobiology. Is skiing better? What do you, skiing, I guess you think you enjoy skiing more than surfing, I imagine, based on where you live. It came down. So <laughs> I was living in LA. The traffic was getting worse and worse. It was taking, uh, every time I would go for a surf adventure, right? If you, the break you're going to, it's not breaking, you're going elsewhere. And the drives were getting horrendous. And then the ocean went flat about seven months. And when like surfing and flow is your like main drug of choice and suddenly that drug gets taken away, let's just say California is a bad place to be when you're going to look for a substitute. <laughs> so I moved back to the mountains because uh, they, they never go flat. Yeah, I have a friend, I think he started Suja and he might know him. He lives in Tahoe, but he, uh, he, has, he lives really close to where my daughter was born in North County, San Diego and Encinitas. And I think he would do both. He would just drive right back and forth between Tahoe and North County. That's what I was, I, I, I was doing it. He, in, uh, that's what I, when I was living in San Francisco in the 90s, I split my time between San Francisco, where I'd come down and surf, and Squaw Valley. And I was going back and forth. And, and did you surf in Ocean Beach or where did you surf in San Francisco? I, well, some at Ocean Beach after I got good enough. I learned to surf at Lake Gnarly. Taco Bell. Lake Taco, Lake Taco Bell, Taco Pacifica. Pacifica. Oh, oh nice, nice. Um, which I love. I still love that beach. Um, I would surf Half Moon Bay and Pacifica a lot. Um, and, you know, eventually I got to surfing Ocean Beach. But, I, like, I had near-death experiences out at Ocean Beach. Like, everybody has those terrific, you know, experiences where you get pulled out to sea and you're paddling for your life and it's scary. And, you know, a few too many of those at Ocean Beach. Um, but... Yeah, I've only surfed there a couple of times. And I remember we pulled up once and my brother and I were like, that's a effing double over. That's double overhead right there. Like there was just yeah. a set that was double overhead. And we're like, yeah. and it's, it looks pretty mellow. And there was other people paddling out. So we paddled out. But the amount of water that was moving was out of control. It's, yeah, it's, they say if you can surf Ocean Beach, you can surf anywhere. I never became a good Ocean Beach surfer, right? Like there were, I had friends who were, who were really deeply committed to it, but you just had to really love to paddle, right? You had to be a great, great, great paddler to serve at Ocean Beach. Mm. Wow, wow. All right, do you have any, um, I guess for a final question here, do you have any adventures you planned that you're super stoked about? Like any, 
thing um, on the radar that I, might well, be I'm, quite I, compelling I, or breaking normal? I'm trying to ski 80 to 100 days this season, um, no matter what it takes. Mm. So, um, you know, the resorts are going to close. I'm going to take it into the backcountry. The backcountry is going to close. I'm going to take it to Mount Hood. Mount Hood's going to shut down and I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to keep going. I'm writing about it. I, uh, I decided to learn how to park ski and how to like really, really get my freestyle game on. I'm 53 years old. So I figured it was about time. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I saw your, our birthdays are pretty close. I was born June 1st. Um, do you believe in the thing with signs or zodiacs or you know, that guy in your light? They're, any, they're, fun. they're fun, fun, but not a, not no, a, I don't. Okay. I was curious about that when I saw your birthday, cause I was probably supposed to be born on May 25th. What does that mean? Um, oh, like I, I, I had a delayed birth. My mom had complications and she actually had a C-section. So I'm a C-section baby. Any thoughts on that? C-section baby? No, I actually, when you said it, I started to wonder if there had any studies on the differences between C-section babies and um, non-C-section. I don't know what the term is. Babies, I know I, I, don't, I don't do a whole lot of infant anything um, research. Like I read some of the infant neuroscience stuff because it's cool, but not a whole lot of it. And that's just really outside my lane. But it's an interesting question. I wonder, you know, I wonder, you, you know, the differences between bottle fed and breastfed turned out to be profound, right? Yeah. So yeah. the differences, you know, between natural birth and C-section might be larger than you would suspect. And I wonder if anybody's looked at that. Yeah, I've question. heard some things just to plant some seeds from some extra out there people. Like one of a really mystical man, you might know. I'm also going to keep his name off. Well, you can, I, I'll, yeah, man, we'll talk about later. You have to understand that I'm not like that. Not the world. I like. I hang out with like athletes and neuroscientists and artists. I don't hang out with mystics and people who go to Burning Man and you he's know. Even now, he's even. He's farther out there. That's not my jam. But he, he's just like, yeah, the, he was saying that um, he wasn't sure if me taking DMT would be a, as easy idea because I didn't have the initial DMT hit of going through the birth canal. And that was a, something he said to me once, you know, his own words, his own words. Yeah, I mean, but there's zero, zero, zero proof for that hypothesis. In fact, um where that hypothesis came from is my buddy, Rick Strassman, who's a friend of mine. And he was the one who first mentioned it. And he would be the first to tell you, hey, there's no proof for the DMT hypothesis whatsoever, that there's DMT uh, issued at birth or death. But I will tell you that as a guy who thinks psychedelics are generally boring, DMT is really interesting. You should try DMT. It's cool. Um, it's an inter yeah, it's, I mean, like, it's sort of like, I think everybody should see it at least once. Cause you're like, holy crap. Even it, like my, I, my response is holy crap. I can't believe my brain could do this like that. Wow. Even, nothing mystical going on for me, my, but like, even just like in my, from my perspective, which is very hard headed and rational materialist. And you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a guy who has that as experiences, but I was like, wow, that was neat. That was worth doing. I'm glad I did that. This, that reminded me, probably because we brought him up earlier, but the first time we met Laird, my brothers and I, we had him on video. <clears throat> he drives off. He's like, the, the final words he says to us, he's like, hey, boy, well, he's like, speed and take chances and just drives off. And like on video, we're like, uh, and that was kind of like, yes, yeah, I recommend taking DMT at least once. Well, thank you. Yeah. And there's something, there was a, a lyric of a song that I heard. And I think we, someone may have even said it 
during this interview about feeling safer, taking risk. And um, I don't know, it seems like a theme that I'm imagining. Maybe, maybe I feel that way. Maybe you feel that way overall, feeling safer overall, taking the right risk overall. I, okay. Why don't you explain? What do you mean that I, I, um, like, I will tell you that I, I need a, a, a fairly significant amount of risk taking in my life whether it's creatively as an artist, as a writer, as a, as, a, as a thinker in the research I'm doing on flow or as an athlete, like all of it, even in my personal relationships, right? Um, all of it, I operate better, maybe safer with a significant amount of risk in my life, but that's just me. And that's very personality based. And, you know, that's just me. I don't necessarily know if it's going to work for me. It's going to work for everybody. Yep. Thanks for clarifying that as well. I, I imagine my duty here is to be an investigative journalist of sorts and just accurately report what's happening for me and to keep improving that. And I kind of see you in a similar light. So thank you. Thank you for uh, your leadership, your writings, your productions, uh, your, your journalism, and you being you. And, and you, you, can, you can say a lot quickly too. It's pretty impressive. I trust that the <laughs> microphone and the Wi-Fi kept up with the speed of your communication. <laughs> Yeah, I talk pretty fast. Um, I've never, I've never been accused of not doing that. <laughs> well, thanks for your time, Stephen. And uh, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure pleasure. to see how much of that we can include in the show notes. But for sure, check out the book "Art of Impossible" on Audible. And uh, maybe I'll see you in the mountains sometime soon. We're, but one, I do have one question for you. What's your? Oh no, yeah. Yeah, now I want to know what's your local in San Diego. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. So I lived uh, on Neptune between Jupiter and Avocado, my local Encinitas people there. So I would walk to Grandview or Ponto, uh, usually Grandview or Ponto or another spot, maybe in between some other places. They're like people don't talk about. They're not, yeah, they're not no, as no, legendary. No, no, no. no, no, no. That- I mean, the other thing is you can't ask a surfer where they start. It's like asking me where I'm skiing. Like I'll generally tell you but I won't tell you where I'm actually going because I don't want to see you there. <laughs> but Ponto, I'll tell people about that spot. Hey, that, that spot's kind of like Ocean Beach in a way. Not, not nearly as much, but there is a concentrated little, it's coming out of an inlet and a lot of water that can move. I've never surfed all there. of a sudden, oh, that wave can get real heavy real quick. And that's why, the, that's like, I can tell people about it, but you're going to be in a, with an intimidating crowd and a potentially intimidating wave. Yeah, new, I, Newport surprised me that way too i remember the first time i paddled out at newport and i was like oh my god this thing is heavy i couldn't believe it you know what i mean similar. Like it you, is similar you, you just you, you sort of think that these southern california waves are are friendly and, and most of them are until they're not <laughs> yeah and then also uh, my favorite what really brought me to surfing in san diego was black's beach black's, black's beach yeah that, i mean and that that be that beach can get so big and gnarly but on a head high day I mean, other than the crowd, those are, that's about like my ideal wave. <laughs> More than trestles? Yeah, probably so. I like a pitchier like beach break uh, that I can get in and out of real quickly and then taking like a long, smooth ride. I like, I like that in and out action real fast. That's amazing. But trestles, I mean, yeah, I try. Trestles are the best wave in the world too. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's so many, there are so many good waves in Southern California. It's, it's profound. It's swamis. Oh, I love man. swamis. Swamis. Um, even, even that really dirty, even the dirtier beaches. I've had <laughs> a lot of fun at, uh, 
Swami's is here. Curtis is here. There's a break in between the two. Um, um, and I can't remember what it's called. Oh, uh, oh, pipes, maybe. Cardiff. Pipes and San, pipes, San Leo reefs. There's a whole yeah, little campground. Like it's a really quick. It's a. It's it's like it's right next to Cardiff, but it's like Cardiff, but like compressed into like four seconds instead of ten seconds. Yeah, yeah, I, I might be getting the directions a little mixed up, but that whole that whole stretch of beaches is amazing. It's really that that is for someone that wants to live the lifestyle that you're choosing to live with skiing, but with surfing, that that's, living that's there is the that's a great spot to be, and it's not cheap. It's not easy, nope. not easy to find a spot there <laughs> for the average Joe, for sure. For sure. Manifested many miracles there. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff there. I guess like Charlie Chaplin had a house there next to the Self-Realization Fellowship from Paramahansa Yogananda. And then there, you know, you have like Tony Hawk's ex-wives and all these other people, like all over, Sean White, like all of them, they're like all just living there in the neighborhood. Tony Hawk. <laughs> Are you speaking bad of Lotsi? I don't even know who's who. I just like, I've met people. I'm like, oh yeah, it was Tony's ex. I'm like, whoa, uh, Tony Hawk's ex? That's, yeah, like, okay. you're talking about, about Lotsi. Uh, she's an old friend of mine who, who lives down there. Um, That's funny. That know. might be her and that she's, yeah. if oh, this, yeah. she's awesome. Definitely not talking yeah, bad she, about she, her. No, no, she's not. Uh, uh, but she is Tony's ex. Uh, she helped, uh, she was very active in the early uh, extreme ski world. That makes sense. And that's what that, na- that neighborhood is kind of like your, it seems like a flow, re- flow state research collective right there. And that like blocks there because, and that was the picture I'm painting. It's like extreme athletes and all their families just rolling around the beaches there. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, you, you see that in these, like they're communities of innovation, right? They're just action sports communities of innovation. Skiing is Squaw or Jackson Hole or Whistler. Surfing, there's a North Shore community and there's, you know, there's the hardcore Mavericks Ocean Beach community and then there's pockets in Southern, you know what I mean? And they're just basically communities of innovation and progression. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by those. I feel like I've been on some sort of like light rail between those jumping around. And uh, Encinitas is where we decided to have our, uh, for our daughter to be born. But yeah, the North Shore of Maui was on the radar. Senator, like Costa Rica, parts certain beaches of Costa Rica were on the radar. It's a fun time to be alive with all the technology at our fingertips and being able to talk about it. So thank you for doing it, Stephen. And I'm going to trust we'll be in touch. Thanks for having me. Yeah, keep breaking normal. Much love. Bye-bye. Take care. Appendix. Top 10 hacks for breaking normal. Number one, wake up. Wake up naturally, no alarms, no electronic devices, and don't stress about doing it. Simply do it if and when you want to. Sleep when you're tired and wake up when you're rested. Simple, right? It is, but look at how many challenges we create for ourselves by not doing it. Look at all the stress that comes from trying to outsmart our bodies rather than work with them. For what? We all know how good it feels going to bed on Friday night knowing that we get to sleep in on Saturday morning. It's wonderful. Even the thought of it makes us smile. So why don't we do it every night? Why don't we surrender to sleep when our bodies tell us? Stay asleep as long as it needs and wake up when it naturally wants. Because it's not realistic? Because it's not practical? Actually, it's very realistic, very practical, and what's more, it's very sensible. 
It took quite a story to convince us otherwise. Imagine going to bed every night with a feeling of abundance rather than scarcity. Imagine getting all the sleep you need and desire. How could that abundance not carry over into the rest of your day? Perhaps the resistance to this idea, writing it off because you think it is impossible, is indicative of how far you've actually strayed. Sure, you might have to make some other life changes in order to make it happen, but by changing the way you wake up, you might actually wake up. Number two, cold shower and or polar plunge after getting out of bed. Cold water is a game changer. It wakes you up better than coffee or tea, not that I'm against either, and provides huge health benefits. It is a natural stimulant to the sympathetic nervous system, increases alertness, reduces inflammation, circulates blood and lymph, accelerates metabolism, enhances immune function, and speeds recovery. Cold water is a good spiritual practice. You can think about it all you want. You can stand in the shower with your hand on the knob or dip your toe in the water in procrastination. But eventually, you get to turn off your mind and jump in. Cold showers get you fun, comfortable, first thing in the morning, reinforcing the daily habit of going outside your comfort zone because that's where all the growth takes place. And if you don't have what it takes to practice being fun, comfortable in the comfort of your own home, what business do you have being fun, comfortable in front of a crowd? How will you lead others to grow if you can't lead yourself? Number three, hydrate. The solution to pollution is dilution. When you think you are hungry, drink some water first, the best water you can get, infused with fresh lemon. You might find, after drinking a liter or so, that you weren't actually hungry, only thirsty. If you do eat afterwards, however, your digestion will be improved. Lemon has healthy enzymes, electrolytes, and vitamin C, and helps alkalize the body. Chew your water. Drink it slowly. Swish it in your mouth. Mix it with saliva before swallowing it down. Drink water first thing in the morning before eating breakfast and drink plenty more throughout the day. Number four, sit in the sun, naked. Not only for the vitamin D, not only because it's fun comfortable, not only because it increases healthy hormone production, gives you energy and makes you grow, do it because it feels good. Do it because it is your birthright. Find the balance between too much sun and too little sun. Bonus, get grounded while you're at it. Go barefoot in the grass, in the dirt, on the beach, etc. Shoes are great, but the shadow side is that they might separate us from the Earth's electric current. So go outside with your shoes off and see how your mood changes. Water, paradoxically, is also grounding. Walk through a creek, in the rain, or beneath a waterfall. Not only will this ground you, it will flood you with mood-enhancing negative ions. Maybe kids have so much energy and spirit because they run barefoot through the grass while playing with hoses and sprinklers. Number five, consciously eat local, organic, in-season foods with an attitude of gratitude for each ingredient and how it got to you. Take a moment to smell your food, look at your food, touch it, appreciate it, and pray for it. Maybe the degree to which you can be grateful for your food is the degree to which your food will be good for you. 
Know that what you are eating is turning into you, becoming a part of your body, providing fuel for your fire. Drink your food and chew your water. Number six, functional fitness. Keyword, fun. Working out can be fun. So whatever that means to you, that's what I'd advise you to do. Sometimes I do it outside in the sun, in the grass, doing whatever I feel like a 100% effort. Sprints, handstands, squats, pull-ups, dead hangs, etc. I get more done in seemingly less time, though in actuality, time itself is flying by because I'm having fun. Other days I go to the gym because that's what I feel like doing. Those days might be more traditional workouts, but I upgrade them by simultaneously listening to motivational speeches and mixes. It's a heightened sensory experience. Rather than only hearing the words, I feel them with my whole body. I absorb them into my mind, heart, muscles, and lungs. Literally, I am growing inside out, strengthening inside and out, overcoming resistance externally while pushing myself internally. Bonus. Listen to audiobooks while getting massages. It feels as if the words are being rubbed directly into you, allowing you to absorb more of what you're learning. Number seven, tell the truth. Practice being more honest in your daily life and relations. Use this phrase to get you over that hump of resistance. I have something I want to share, but I observe that I'm nervous to do so. Typically for me, that earns a thoughtful expression out of my listener and they give me the floor. Number eight, meditate and pray. Prayer is when you're speaking to God. Meditation is when you're listening to God. Recognize or experiment with the idea that whenever you are speaking, you are praying, and whenever you are listening, you are meditating. Everything you say is a prayer, and even if it seems like no one is listening, the Creator can hear every word. Conversely, whenever you are listening, listen closely because God is telling you something. Number nine, get paid to do the things you love to do, the things you would pay to do and or the things you would continue to do regardless of whether you're getting paid to do them. Those things that make time and space disappear from consciousness are tied closely to your gift. You love to do them, and you give your love by doing them. Make the choice to live in that state of natural abundance, which is unavoidable and everywhere you look. Make your work be something that fills you up, for that is the most sustainable job you can have. Number 10. Do these exercises. I've found that the best way to do these exercises is to conduct your own workshops for friends and family. First, give testimonials about how much you yourself have gotten out of these exercises. Second, extend the invitation for other people to join you. Invite them to invest time and money in something that you are willing to put on because of the results you yourself have gotten. Giving them the opportunity to invest money in the experience catalyzes them to get the value out of it. Third, take the lead and go first. If it's the confession exercise, you confess first. If it's the notice and imagine exercise, you go first. If it's the sharing judgments exercise, share your judgments. Lastly, team up with the people who seem most stoked by these ideas to attract even more attractive people. <laughs> 